Hi, and welcome to Journeys to Belonging podcast with host Dr. Eileen Winokur, featuring awesome educators and leaders who share their journeys, advice, and personal stories about feeling a sense of belonging. and welcome to another episode of Journeys to Belonging. I'm really, really excited to welcome this episode's guest. Donnie Winokur, as you can notice from her name, is related to me. She's my sister-in-law, but that's not why I've asked her to be a guest on Journeys to Belonging. You'll understand why as we chat. Welcome, Donnie. Thank you, Eileen. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. I didn't really say too much, and there are so many things that you're involved in and have been involved in. So please share with my listeners. That sounds good. For the last 20 years, I've become a mom of two adopted children from Russia, Marasha, our daughter, and Ayal, our son. They were adopted in 1999, and they were just 14 months when we got them, brought them home from Russia. And so with becoming a mom of adopted children, that was a huge shift in my life. And we realized that when my son was four years old, he was diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome, which is the most severe outcome of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And fetal alcohol spectrum disorders is an umbrella term used to describe a range of outcomes or conditions that can occur when a person is exposed to alcohol prenatally. So what that means is if a mom is pregnant and she consumes alcohol during her pregnancy, there is a possibility that she might um, have a baby with fetal alcohol syndrome. This was a huge change in our parenting expectations. When we found out that Ayal was um, diagnosed with FAS, we realized that there would have to be some very rigorous interventions, both medically and behaviorally. And it was just, it refocused, I think, what our expectations were for parenting. And while we were changing our parenting style, I realized that my advocacy had to be very focused to help Ayal. And I became involved with special education in Georgia. Mm -hmm. I sat on a panel for that. And I joined some other organizations basically to use my lens of developmental disabilities, which FASD, FASDs are. That also really informed another avenue, which was to um, bring awareness about fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And now we know that one out of 20 people will have some sort of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which is a public health crisis. Oh my goodness, I didn't realize the numbers were that high. Yeah, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's an invisible disability. Most of the people who are diagnosed don't show any kind of facial characteristic or any kind of 
other physical difference mm -hmm. than what we call neurotypical people. And that presents huge problems because folks who have been prenatal alcohol exposed, they may be set up to a bar or what typical people can do, and they can't. I realized that my full-time job would become advocacy for my son in creating awareness for fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, which we also call FASDs. Mm -hmm. When I realized how prevalent it was and how most people had no idea it even existed, it just became a real um, passion to educate people. Mm -hmm. So I started going to classes, conferences, any place I could get information to help us better parent IAL and help other parents who needed support. Yeah. And then as a result of that, I started to write about FASD and I published a children's book called Nuzzle, which was actually the command that our service dog, IAL service dog used to help um, calm IAL down. And I'll talk about service dogs again. So there just seemed to be such a need to explain to people that this developmental disability existed. People knew about autism, they knew about Down syndrome, but this has been under the radar. And I felt a real need to bring it up so people understood it. Now, and for the last several years, I've been speaking internationally at conferences, presenting on FASDs, and I've also become involved with CAPTA, which is the Child Abuse Prevention Treatment Act. There is one of these panels in every state. And what this panel does is try to improve child welfare and neglect. And that can look like a lot of different things. What I bring to that is my expertise in disabilities and how there is a disproportional number of children and adults that are incarcerated that have fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, but nobody knew that. Oh. And because of that, it, it puts somebody who is very vulnerable in a position where they may commit crimes and they may not remember that they did it because there's a short-term memory issue with this disability. Mm -hmm. And their vulnerability could look like, oh, that person will be my friend if I go into the store and get a bottle of liquor, I'll go buy a pack of cigarettes. Yeah. And our son in particular is very, very desperate to have friends. So he will do things that are probably not good choices because he thinks then that person will be his friend. Mm. And in the extreme form, this puts people in prison because they don't understand that they're doing anything wrong right. and they might not even remember that they did it before. Mm -hmm. So this is a big, it's a big problem for people with this disability and they wind up in the justice system and they don't remember what they've learned. So they wind up going back into the justice system. So it's a revolving door. And so there's a lot of need to inform um, first responders, police, mm -hmm. detectives, um, emergency squad people. I mean, there's just so many people that need to know how, what the symptoms look like right. and how to treat kids and adults 
in that moment when a crisis has happened and it could be considered criminal. So that's a whole thing that I've become involved with. And then along with that is to have a conversation, which is really difficult, which is about um, people with FASD, particularly children who are trafficked, sexually trafficked or labor trafficked. And again, it's the vulnerability that pulls these kids and people into a situation where they think they're going to get money, they're going to help their family, you know, they are coerced mm -hmm. into a situation that is horrible for them. And that happens with people without disabilities as well. Right. So those are areas that I've been focused on. <clears throat> but probably the best area, which just gives um, me such warmth and meaning is that when I all first had FASD, he was actually nine years old, we were able to obtain a service dog for Ayal. And Chancer, his dog, was the first FASD service dog ever. Wow. And with Chancer came so much more of an opportunity to educate and advocate. Right. Chancer changed not just Ayal's lives, but our whole families. Mm -hmm. he, offered, he offered a protection of Ayal and a way to communicate to people out in public that it wasn't Ayal's fault that things were happening. It wasn't his parents' fault that things were happening or his sister's. This dog was there to help this kid who was having trouble with his behaviors, his emotions. Yeah. And so it was kind of like a neon sign to people that, oh, wow, oh, I get it. They have a dog that's a service dog. I guess there's something different people might say wrong, but different about that kid. Mm -hmm. And there was an opportunity to tell people, oh, you want to know what this dog does? Yeah, what does it do? So there's, again, another opportunity to um, share our life and others' lives about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Right, yeah. Wow. I can see why you're, you're, you're such an advocate. Um, the first question I usually ask my guests, and so this is going to seem like a jump away, but I think it has so much to do with everything that you've been talking about, is if I say the word belonging or feeling a sense of belonging, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And I think there's just so much about what you're talking about that has to do with, with this social-emotional need um, to, to belong. The first thing I think about when I think of belonging is the fact that my kids were adopted mm -hmm. and how their immediate, immediate experience of themselves once they understood was that they came from a place that was a hard place. It was a place where they were already um, abandoned. So that was an initial an initial abandonment that I think stays on some level with people who are adopted. Yeah. I hope that the life that we've given Marash and I all is one that leaves them with safety and security and a sense of belonging to our family, belonging to people who care about them. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a crucial, a crucial way to look at their very, their very sense of who they are. Mm -hmm because both kids in different ways have asked, why did my, why did my mother not want me? Oh, wow. And yes. you know, the answer we were 
um, coach to say was not that um, they didn't love you or they didn't want you, but more along the lines of, we didn't think we had enough money maybe to take good care of you. We couldn't give you enough food. We didn't want you to live in a city where you wouldn't get good health care. Mm -hmm. So we talk about making a plan, making an adoption plan. Mm -hmm. so people don't say, oh, you were given up. And that's not the case because that, that says a whole lot of wrong things and certainly doesn't provide a sense of belonging. Sure. Yeah. The message that it sends is, is, uh, is problematic just, just in its essence and reinforces the fact that they were somehow abandoned, which is the wrong, you know, the, the message you don't want to send them. But that, that's so interesting that you made that connection between that because at, you said they were 14 months old when they were adopted and they're not brother and, and sister. They were from different orphanages, correct? And their yes. birth dates have, happen to be two days apart. So they're the same age. So that's why they were both 14 months old at the time. But you figure all of the attachment or detachment that uh, that they were experiencing um, possibly through that time. So, yes, you know, the fact that you and and uh, and Harvey, my brother, were able to give them that sense of safety and security. So I, I think it's wonderful the way you you made that connection and and were able to bring their stories um, into all of this. You, you've always been an advocate. You, you've had advocacy um, and, and been an advocate even before uh, you adopted uh, Ayal and Marasha. Can you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about, about what kinds of things? I mean, I know you were involved in, in drama and so forth and in, in helping women um, sort of find a, a sense of self at one point. And that to me is, is advocacy. There, there was always this kind of thread within you even before the kids came along. You know, it would be great if you could share some of that part of your journey um, and then we'll get into the, the later part of your journey. But to share, share some of your your earlier experiences with advocacy, because it's something that, that is built in you. I think something that has always been really important to you. I think growing up, my parents instilled in me values um, for social justice, for um, empathizing with people who might have less than we did. Mm -hmm. And as, as a result of that, I was raised to always be aware of uh, what other people might need. And so to, to develop, I guess, a sensitivity, perhaps, in being observant of people um, that might need more. I'm, the thing that just came to mind is, I was thinking about when I was younger and we had a woman come to clean our house, mm -hmm. maybe once a month, once or twice a month, and she was black. And we would go pick her up at the train station near where we lived. Mm -hmm. And I remember one day telling my dad that it bothered me that there was a black woman that had to come to our house. That I felt, I think it was that I felt bad that she didn't have a car and that she had to come to work for us twice a month. And was she poor? 
And I think those were the things that were on my mind. And I asked my dad these questions. And he said, well, what we're doing is good for her because we give her an opportunity to make money. Her coming to us, even though it feels like, wow, we're, we're too, we don't need somebody else to clean our house. You know, we could do it ourselves. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective that my dad gave me because he was trying to twist it to say, no, she needs us. This is good for her. We give her work. And it just was a real change in the way that I thought about things, mm -hmm. because I guess I was feeling guilty or something that we had this woman come, come to the house. So I think that that kind of informed my thinking about what are the different ways we can help people who need things in their life that we might be able to offer. Mm -hmm. And in Judaism, particularly, that's a very important theme of helping others, that if you help one person, you have helped the world. And mitzvah, the real meaning of that word is that you're doing good, but you don't even have to tell somebody you're doing good. You just do it because it feels like the right thing to do. Right. So it's kind of an invisible reach out to people to... Um, maybe help their sense of belonging if they have felt not not included in a community because they don't have this or they don't have that right. so that's I don't know those were things that I was raised with and I think some of the first advocacy I can remember doing was in high school when the Jews in this former Soviet Union were trying to emigrate to the United States to get out of the Soviet Union because they were denied rights so I got involved with um, doing some campaigns in my youth groups where we were trying to, we actually did like role-playing for a day to experience what was it like for a person trying to get out of the Soviet Union. And they had, we used a whole synagogue actually. We had to go to different rooms to pretend we were in a certain area. Then we would go to another room. And it was really a very... Um, it made, a, made an impression on me to walk in somebody else's shoes. Yes, yes. And it gave me a lot of insight into, wow, there are people out there who need voices. And how can I use my voice? So that's just an, another memory that popped up. Yeah. That's so interesting because they're, to me, they're connected by the fact that it's not a handout in either right. of those cases. It's how can I ensure that they're able to take care of themselves, that right. they're doing. So it's not that I'm, I'm just handing them something and, um, and that makes me feel good because I have it and so I'm giving it to them. No, it's, it's that I'm experiencing and, and living through what they're going through and saying, I really want them to feel this either sense of belonging or self-worth, self-esteem, um, you know, and, and, and that's, I mean, and the second example you gave of actually not just even role-playing, but almost living through the, the eyes of uh, wearing the shoes of the, those people who were trying to emigrate, and it, it's pretty intense. I mean, if you, yeah. it sounds like you took it really seriously to the point where after all these years, you, you remember it, which realized that, that those people, um, that they needed a voice 
Um, you were providing that to a certain extent, but you wanted to make sure that they had the opportunity to be able to use their voices uh, in order to speak for themselves also. So, so that's, that's really, really amazing. I want to go back to, uh, to IAL a bit and the FASD. I know from just because we talk a lot that there was a lot of advocacy that you did for him within the school system. And I, I wonder if, because there are a lot of educators who, who listen to the podcast, but also because sometimes it's difficult for parents to know what to do. And I believe that seeing Ayal, who's now 22. He'll be 24. Oh my you? goodness. He'd be, oh, I missed a year. Um, <laughs> I didn't okay. know that. But that he, he is where he is right now because of your advocacy and the advocacy of, of my, you know, of both his parents, but especially for you. So could you, you kind of take us a little bit through that or even recommendations for parents, things that you learned along the way? Because like you said, early on when you found out about Ayal's uh, diagnosis, you needed to switch up the way you were parenting. Well, I think what I experienced and what many people experience who are in a similar situation is that um, to find out as much about their child's disability as they can. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that I think about all the time is that Harvey and I have had the ability to educate ourselves. We've had the ability to take IR for different services. Right. We have transportation to get him to places. We we have a, an awareness of, of what this disability lives like, not just looks like, but lives like. And I think about all these people just in the state of Georgia who don't even have an idea that their child may have special needs because they don't have enough, um, they haven't been exposed to other people to have a comparison or, or people will say to them, oh, my kid was just like that at four. Oh, that's just how boys are. That, their child may be dismissed in many ways because other people don't see the disability or don't understand it. And that's horrible for a parent to hear that because it not only dismisses the child or the whole conversation, but it diminishes the, the feelings of the parent it, mm -hmm. because it's saying like, ah, don't worry about that. Well, I'm worried, I'm worried. Mm -hmm. So then all these people who don't live near public transportation, but know they need to see a doctor or try to get some other kind of therapy, they don't even have the wherewithal to go to a place to get that. Right. What I do know from my advocacy is that there are very few clinics in the country who are able to service or provide services to families who have children with special needs, particularly fetal alcohol syndrome. Mm. So part of that to me was learning that, wow, my special educators in my public school system really don't know about this disability. They know about autism because that's kind of been out there and publicized in a way, but fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, it's not even listed on an IEP, an individual educational plan. Every child who, Every child should have an IEP if, in fact, they need accommodations or modifications in the work that other children will have. 
So every year I found myself increasing the files of Ayal's medical records and the different therapies we did for him. And year after year, we would have to try different things because they didn't work or they worked for a little while or um, it was completely out of the question. We couldn't get Ayal involved. For example, for a while, and he still does a little bit, Ayal would have sensitivities to smell, touch, sounds. Um, smell, touch, sounds. I think, well, I don't know if you would consider this visual or not, but an example would be if there were magnets in our refrigerator and there was something about the magnet that upset Ayal, he literally sat at our kitchen table for years with his back facing the refrigerator so he didn't have to see that image. There was something going on with that. And he thought that he smelled things that nobody else smelled and he might um, be aversive to them, meaning he just didn't want to feel that experience. And he has become... He has always been sensitive, sensitive to being touched. And that was a real um, challenge for us as parents sure. because you want to hug your child. You want to touch them on the shoulder. And this is not something I've been able to do like a parent normally can do. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to education, we did a lot of educating and I tried to feel, um, to honor the teachers because a lot of it had to do with there was not enough money in a school system in order to educate the teachers mm -hmm. or there wasn't enough time for them to take classes in their schedules or so that was money time. Um, there wasn't the need. I don't think educators understood that there were so many more children who were dealing with this disability, which for NIL's example made it um, there were days when he was sent home because he, he didn't become violent per se, but he became out of control mm -hmm. and he wasn't able to stay in the classroom. And even with his IEP, he was still sent home because he was disruptive. Mm -hmm. So there were, you know, and it was so difficult for me to explain to somebody that it wasn't willful. He didn't mean to do it. It's not that he wants to do it. He can't. Yeah he can't stop himself from doing it. Yeah. And that had a lot to do with the way he learned. And um, because there's a randomness to fetal alcohol syndrome, it, didn't, it wasn't convincing to special educators that he wasn't doing it on purpose. An example, a quick example would be during school, Ayal might learn that two plus two is four. And he could do that. He could actually do that small application of addition They'd send him home with homework, which in and of itself was ridiculous because it all it did was frustrate him and us, and it didn't improve his understanding of something. So he'd come home and he'd have a math assignment to do, and it was two plus two. He couldn't remember what it was, and we would prompt him, we would show him with our fingers, and he just, his brain didn't remember. So we would send the homework back with a note saying, you know, we're sorry, I wasn't able to complete this homework. And the teacher sent a note back saying, well, he learned it in school yesterday. Well, no, he didn't. He might act like he did. And he might know this in a couple of weeks, but the next day it was gone. It was yeah, gone because yeah. his brain was like a sieve. Things just fell through the holes. 
some stuff stayed, some stuff was lost. Right. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, it's, it's interesting how, you know, you talk about the, the needs in the schools, the lack of, of support, um, not, not on purpose, um, not by the teachers on purpose, not by the, but the system is really not programmed to be able to support parents, to support children. And at the, at the start, you mentioned about the fact that, that it's an invisible disability. And, and um, when we talk about that invisible disability, you know, you look at IAL and you think, wow, you know, uh, tall, uh, handsome, wonderful personality. I mean, we love him so much. And when, you know, when he gets disruptive, it's like, well, he must be doing it on purpose. But as you said, it's, it's related to his disability and his inability to be able to control that, even though he knows he shouldn't be behaving like that at certain times. So there, there are so many layers to all of that. So uh, thank you for, for sharing, sharing all of that. I wanted to go back to um, the Children's Justice Act Task Force through Georgia's Child Abuse and Prevention Act. I think that would be really interesting because it's it's not something that um, I'm aware of. And uh, I know that you're on the task force. You mentioned at the beginning when you were talking uh, about yourself that it's, it's something that, you know, is, is really important to you. So can you to kind of go into a little bit more about that? What is the purpose of the task force? What kinds of things are you hoping, hoping to do? What's your role in all of that? The task force is mandated by the state to provide funding for other agencies that are in child welfare. Mm-hmm. For example, the Department of... Um, I think what, there's so many acronyms. Is that the right word? Mm-hmm. So many bunches of initials that come together. Yes. It's like I can't remember what is what. Mm-hmm. But um, so we're mandated by the state to provide funding to different agencies, and that might look like um, CPS, Child Protective Services. Okay. What what expectations do we have of what their goals and objectives are? in what they do to provide money for them. It's interesting because it is a very community-involved organization and that CAPTA reaches out to so many different I'm trying to think, ways to support children. Mm-hmm. It can be, oh, again, maybe a child is abducted or a child is um, taken into custody. Ch- There's so many there's a lot of emotions attached to that. And a lot of what we try to do though is um, in foster care say, they really want to do a lot of reunification of children with their biological families if the biological family can take care of them. So that's a goal. And I always worry though, that when a kid comes out of foster care into a home, for example, they might have an invisible disability and the foster home previously or the foster care system has not screened them for this. And a kid will be placed in three or four foster homes because of their behaviors. They are dysregulated. They are triggered by things 
And the foster parents just put up their hands like, I can't control this kid. I don't know what's going on with them. And if they haven't been educated, then kids are going through the foster care system all over the place because nobody knows how to deal with them, how to take care of them. So I think there's a real need to educate people in the foster care system. We try to educate the school systems to know what to look out for if, okay. a, if a child may be abused at home. So there's a whole educational process that goes with what we do mm-hmm. also to, to make sure that, um, and also like shelters to inform people that live in shelters that there is a possibility somebody could come and invite them to participate in something only to find out that in 24 hours they are in a, a prostitution ring or they become trafficked mm-hmm. because they're, they're desperate, these people. They, they're homeless. They have no place to live. So there's a lot of ways that people are taking advantage of or are maltreated that most people don't think about. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our work evolves along that lines. I hope that's clear. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you're you're there as, as, um, as, as, as an expert. Are you also there as a parent or it's more your expertise? And are there other parents involved in the task force? What, what is the task force composed of? Who, who is on that task force in Georgia particular, since that's, that's the group that you're, you're working right. with? Mm-hmm. We have lawyers, judges, um, other people in the court system, and social workers, some psychologists. I am definitely a parent advocate as well as an expert on developmental disabilities. So I wear both of those hats, but I'm also working in sex trafficking. So I kind of bring that expertise to it as well in, in light of people with disabilities and trafficking. Um, we also have an investigators who do forensic interviews with children mm-hmm. um, who might be neglected or abused. And that's a very specific kind of interview And what I have been doing is doing some role playing when I do presentations where I, because I was a former actress, I, I kind of, it's not even role playing out. I become a person and I explain this before I do it. And I have a real forensic interviewer in the audience come up and do an interview as they think they would do with a child who has disabilities. So I basically become a child who is being, um, being mistreated, being coerced into trafficking, but they don't know this because they have an intellectual disability, Mm -hmm. but they might also have a psychiatric disability. They might have Tourette's syndrome. They might, they might have some other kind of kind of thing. They might have a hearing deficit. They might have a seeing deficit. They may have emotional um, disruptive. They might have conduct disorder personality or may have some psychosis, all these things that could happen to somebody. And when, say, a a police officer comes to a scene and somebody is acting very strange and very unusual, Mm -hmm. how can they accommodate um, that person to help them? And so I sort of inhabit all those different things in about a 10 minute example. Wow. It's very intense. It's very intense for me I because I forgot how deeply I can um, inhabit those 
those attributes, those things. Right, right. So back to CAPTA, they tried to have foster parents and also a, fo a fostered adult on the panel. We, we look for diversity. Mm -hmm. we, we have men and women. Um, we have people who are gay. That, I, I know that just because it's public, but I don't know about other things. But we try to represent mm -hmm. people that we are supporting. Nice. Yeah, to make sure that the, that the services that you're recommending and the kinds of things that you're advocating for are, are truly coming from the needs of the community, which is right. wonderful that, that, that there's this kind of task force. So, um, Donnie, this has been so wonderful, but I, I want to ask you, is there anything that we didn't hit on or that we didn't talk about that you wanted to make sure our listeners knew about? I'm just thinking, you know, about the individual sense of belonging, like one person's need to feel belonging. Mm -hmm. um, I think what I've learned from more than one person and in workshops and programs is that the need to connect is one of the most important things people have that they that we move around in life in groups, not as just an individual. Right. And that can look like different things, but even if it's just connecting to one person that another person feels safe with, that they feel understands them, even if they can't speak, even if for some reason they're not able to speak, that they can feel an attachment to that makes them feel loved and cared for. And then I think on the larger perspective, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about what's going on in Ukraine right now and how mm -hmm. the impact of what's happening to them in this war is that they are a community, they are a nation. Mm -hmm. And that is that message is coming across very clearly through their president and how they will stick together to help one another. And when you see images of these families, um, I mean, what really gets to me is pictures of families with their pets trying to say that pet is part of their family and part of their life. Right. And they're right. trying to keep themselves alive. And the millions of people who are needing to feel that they are, they are a nation still. Right. No matter what happens to them, that they are a nation, and that sense that they belong to one another, even strangers, mm -hmm. is really clear to me that that's part of what's keeping them alive and keeping them moving forward, is that they all together are one. Yeah, wow, that's such that's so powerful, Donnie. I hadn't I hadn't really thought about the situation in quite that way. But you're right. If we if we think about relationships, connections, community, and nationhood, and 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 this whole idea of of civic duty, and of course that this is much bigger than that. But the fact that against all odds they're they're willing to you know fight and risk risk their lives because this is. This is where they belong. This is home. This is who they are. This is how they identify. Thank you so much for sharing that. That that's really uh, um, what a way to to end this conversation. Um, I also want to ask, how can people get in touch with you? And of course, I'll uh, I'll put that in the show notes. And also, you are an author, 
And so we want to make sure to, um, if you want to mention your books, and I'll, I'll have the links to the books in the show notes also. Sure. Well, I mentioned Nuzzle, which is a child's book. Mm -hmm. My daughter, when she was 11, Marasha wrote a book about what it's like to be a sibling mm -hmm. of somebody who has a disability. And her book is called My Invisible World, Life with My Brother and His Service Dog. And then I published a book in 2017 that was a memoir that tells our story from adopting the kids through high school. And that book is called Chancer. Mm -hmm. I think if Eileen, you put the link to my Amazon page, all the books are on the one page. You could read a little bit about them. There was also an audio book. And I'll have, I'll give my website address to you and my email address. And I would welcome hearing from anybody who would like to have a conversation. Wonderful. Oh, Donnie, thank you so much. This was You're really so welcome. This was exquisite. And uh, I learned more about you than I, I thought, well, you know, we've known each other quite a while, but <laughs> I did learn more stuff about you. So thank you so much for being with You're me. Very today. welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you're inspired by what you heard, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about belonging, check my website, Journeys to Belonging, that's Journeys number two belonging, dot webstarts.com. See you next week.